Create an Unstoppable Life, Episode 160. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. It is another great day, and I'm so excited to introduce you all to an amazing woman, an amazing attorney. In fact, she is my my attorney and just an all-around badass. This is Amanda Hill. She is so many things to so many people, and, and what she represents for me is a fierce advocate and a fierce guide on the journey of leading an authentic and a credible and a... a ethics, morals, and legally based life. So that's how I'd introduce you. How would you introduce you? <laughs> well, that is outstanding. Thank you. I will take all of those, uh, mom. but I really am excited to be here, Dina. I have discovered uh, as I enter sort of the second phase of my life, you know, after you, you know, first you turn 20 and then you think, oh, babies, and then 30 and then 40. And then, you know, once you get near 50, it's kind of like, what is it really that's bringing joy to my life? And that's the phase I'm in now, which is really fun. I really enjoy this sort of, I don't care what people think, this is what I'm doing and it's bringing me great joy. And so I don't know, the kind of don't care what people think anymore phase, that's fun. So um, so that's where I'm at. And I have been speaking all over the place about you know entrepreneurial issues and I'm having the time of my life. It's busy, I will say, I never really stop. <laughs> One of these days I'm gonna sleep but I'm really enjoying it. I'm in a good phase. And can you tell folks where what your practice is, your legal practice is now? And then later in the conversation, we'll talk about your new entrepreneurial journey, if that's okay. Sure. So I started out, you know, I've been doing this career for 21 years. So I'm a healthcare attorney in Austin. I started out with the government representing VA hospitals and I quickly learned that I am not a government employee. So I transitioned away from my bureaucratic job, uh, was not my favorite, and thought, what can I do that's that's fun, you know, that has some creativity? I've always been very creative, which doesn't always align with being a lawyer because sometimes law is not creative unless you're litigating and you're coming up with creative arguments. But I'm a transactional healthcare attorney. So that's a lot of statutes, you know, a lot of contracts. So it's really been interesting how I've found a a pathway in the world of health law that still is somewhat creative and inspiring. So I went from my government job to a multi-specialty practice. And it's kind of a funny story. And if you ever said it in public, I would deny it. Although here we are talking to your listeners. So it's just a private story. But I I had um, poison ivy. That's how it started. I had poison ivy and I was at the doctor's office. And I thought, I wonder who represents this practice? I was really young and eager. And so I decided to reach out to their CEO and legitimately, this is a true story. I wrote a brochure pitching my services, <laughs> like fold it over, you know, like hand it to the CEO, like how juvenile is that with, you know, strengths and why I would bring something to this practice and all the creative sides that I could do all their training. I could work with their doctors. And for some crazy reason, they hired me. And that was such an amazing starting point to my healthcare journey. I mean, the VA taught me some basics, but when I really went out on my own and I started working one-on-one with doctors, it was something that just really clicked. It was a natural fit. I saw people that were healers, 
you know, people that were really struggling to make a difference. They put their hands on people. They cared about other people's lives. And it just, it made me so proud, I think, to be in a space where I could help. And as a lawyer, you know, the more I learned and grew in my practice, the more I could help doctors. And that never stopped. So from that job, went to another job, and then I started my own firm and on and on. But the love of helping doctors has always sort of been there since that moment. And I would throw these crazy CME trainings back in the day, and I would have themes, and I would say, this is the golden hour, and it'd be all about geriatric medicine or all the legal issues that go along with people getting older. And one theme would be the Physicians Academy, and I was the headmistress, and we had care packages and cakes that, I mean, all of these crazy creative things. But it made it fun. And doctors said, you know, we want to come back. We want you to train us on some more things because it's enjoyable and you make us laugh. And I, I've always woven that creativity and humor in everything I've done, which is the reason that I, you know, still find joy, I think, in my daily practice. And you did a phenomenal job of it at the Authenticity, Courage and Empowerment Conference at your talk. So that's where we met. And it, yes. it was a significant talk because there, there was a lot of emotional levity. Like we were up and we were cheering about what you shared or a story you shared or a concept that you were uh, giving to us. And then we were down, like really feeling the pain. If you had an example of a contract that went bad and the reasons it went bad, just in general terms. So, so you were taking us on a journey it was clear that you were a fierce advocate of those that you uh, advocate for. So those who you represent. Uh, and, and that's what really drew me in. I was like, she, I would like her to be on my team for the rest of my life. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Sometimes it, you know, it comes to haunt me because I was at a mom's group once and this were all very young moms. I was a little bit older than they were. And we were at a mom's coffee. I think our kids were in like preschool and they all went around the circle and they wanted to know what your, you know, what you did for fun and what your hobbies were, what inspires you. And every, you know, some people said, I like to sew or I like to bake and I like all those things too. But um, when it came to me, I don't know what I was thinking around these people I've never met before. And what came out of my mouth when they said, what inspires you, Amanda, you know, preschool mom. And I said, I mean, if you really want to know, it's, sort of the juxtaposition between humor and pain. Like that really is where I find joy. And I think then everyone looked at me like I was an alien and then I never got invited to that mom group again. So, so maybe that was the wrong answer. I should have just said baking, you know, but I think it's true. Like I find a lot of joy and humor in difficult situations. And that is when I give speeches, I try to hit hard subjects, but also you have to find the light and the joke and the funny, you know, with an, I always say with enough, I didn't say it, famous people have said that with enough time and distance, you'll find humor, you know? And so no matter what painful situation, no matter what stressful situation, you know, it's also sort of hilarious that everything gets piled on at once, you know, <laughs> and all the tragedies and all of the things, and you just have to laugh um, or else you will have in massive anxiety disorder. So that is kind of the way I live my life. So I do agree that there's a lot of hard things in our life, a lot. I mean, way too much for one human sometimes. And so you have to find the little pieces of levity in between there and sort of sandwich them in. One of the things that I hear often from entrepreneurs, many different types, and especially from physicians is, 
they're, they're operating in these territories where there are no limits or boundaries and they feel like either they're doing something wrong or the adults are coming to shut them down. Right. (laughs) Well, I think it's because we're trained to not fail. Right. I mean, you're a physician. I'm a lawyer. I mean, we're type A. We we do things well. Right. We succeed at what we try and strive for and the tests we take. And then all of a sudden you get into an entrepreneurial space. and It's like completely unknown. You know, sometimes we just have no idea that if we study hard, we're going to get an A on that test. It's more like we can try really hard and it still might fail. It might not work. But the hardest lesson for me in anything I've done that's been entrepreneurial is learning from the failure because I hate to fail. I mean, who doesn't, who loves failure, but just trying to pivot and say, okay, that I learned that lesson. I'm going to redirect. It's not failure if you're learning, right? It's just growth. And so if you just keep trying to grow, but that's really hard. I mean, it's really hard for me personally. I don't know if it is hard for all the entrepreneurs, but I just feel like I should have done that better the first time. It's like, says who? Like we're all you know, just jump in at the pool at some point, you know, there's no right place. And then you grow and you learn and you change. And if you're not growing, then you're just chastising yourself all the time for all the mistakes that you made instead of just saying, okay, well now I know I won't do it that way again. I apologize a lot. Sometimes I, I say to my team, well, I don't, I know we, I said that direction is, is great, but now we're switching to another direction. And I think this one will work better. And I think you just have to forgive yourself for having all those adjustments. That's just part of the game. It is. Nobody gets, nobody goes unscathed. It's like riding a bike. Nobody learns how to ride a bike without falling. Right. And and if they do, they waited too long and then they quit when they got it. Just like the first part of it. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's interesting because I've, you know, I'm a writer. I don't, you know that. And I do a lot of writing. I find it very cathartic. I write a lot of humor. Um, But one of the things about writing is, you know, I used to always think if I can just get this out of my head, you know, this would be interesting for my children to read. If I can just get this thought or this piece of humor or something that's going to make someone laugh, like on paper and out into the world, I've done a service in a way, right? Because I'm showing who I am to my family or my children. It's like a part of my legacy, (laughs) all of my brilliant social media posts. I'm kidding. But my point is like getting your thoughts and your words and your energy sort of into the universe is never a bad thing. And so many people, I I think, stifle it, right? They're like, well, I don't have anything important to say, or I don't have my words don't matter. Like other people can say it so much better. Instead of just being like, well, this is what I've got. My kids can read this later, the story I wrote, this book I wrote, these videos that I made, whatever it is, and they can, you know, see a piece of me. And I'm only here on this earth for like a tiny, tiny bit of time, you know, it's very finite. And so you just have to kind of paint the canvas like while you're here, because there's just not a lot of time. I think for many of us, it's probably not being able to see the humor in it or not being able to see the value in it in sharing with others. I know when I read your posts, I'm like, wow, that's incredible. It's an incredible insight, an incredible experience, incredible humility, or just your ability to find things that are funny. Like I remember in the past couple of days, there was something about maple syrup and crashing. (laughs) Yes, okay, so this was yesterday. And I had an extremely busy day. Like, I mean, when I tell you, I've got 350 clients, so you can imagine my days, 
I get calls at 6 a.m. all day between patients. I'm writing documents. I have to run to different hearings and I'm on the phone, taking my kid to football practice. Like I multitask like a boss, right? Because I have to. And I, my, the very end of the day, my son says, I have two tests tomorrow and I don't know any of this Latin. Can you help me memorize it? I don't even know the prime numbers. Like I'm going to fail my math test. We're like, ro I'm rolling up my sleeves. We're studying. I'm, tr you know, I'm trying to put off clients. I actually said, I can talk to you at 930. Just like, give me 30 minutes to a client so I can deal with my son. I mean, you know, all the things we do in a day. And I think someone's breaking into my house. Someone is, I, I hear a crashing from the area of the laundry room. I... I, I don't know. Should I call 911? Like, do we have an intruder? What is happening? There's like glass shattering. Turns out that a shelf that I had in my laundry room, which I store my beautiful platters, my all I have, as I said, I love creative projects. So I like to make um, beeswax candles and all these things. And I had all these jars with all of the various things, all of them crashed. And I love maple syrup. I love it. And I marinate carrots and vegetables in it. And I cook with it more, more so than I even use for pancakes. And I have barrel aged maple syrup in these beautiful glass bottles. And did I just buy one jar? No. Did I buy four jars? Of course. And they're all stored on this shelf. And it had all come crashing down. Perhaps I did not adequately trust the Ikea shelf enough um, for the weight limit. So I overloaded it. I'm sure it's user error. <clears throat> all of it was on the floor. <clears throat> at 10 o'clock at night with my son, son starts crying because he is like lamenting my lost syrup. I'm like, it's fine. It's really okay. We're going to clean this up. We're going to figure out how to not get ants. I'm going to wipe up the glass. We're going to mop this floor. You're going to rock it on your Latin test. You also need a shower. You know, like if you can't find the humor in maple syrup covering your entire laundry room at 10 o'clock on a Monday, then you just don't have a, a funny bone, you know, cause that's funny. And so I try to recognize when these things sort of, it rains, it pours that someday, you know, my life might be really dull. I might be sitting in a nursing home. If I live that long, I might be just wasting away somewhere bored as my children live their lives. And I will wish for days like this where they're just chaos and crazy and sticky and, you know, I actually gave my, I tucked my kids in and I realized I still had maple syrup like all over me. Like it was sort of dried and crusty. <laughs> At one point, my son that last night said, I mean, I love you, but you're making me kind of sticky. If you can just maybe back off. <laughs> so, you know, that's my life. And it's, it's a crazy mess and it's really enjoyable. And I still have not fully mopped the floor and because I have yet more work to do today, but it will get done. And so those are the types of things I, I feel like social media is a real double-edged sword. You know, it, it's everyone's, you know, obviously everyone says it's not just what you see on social media. And they say that, but nobody believes it. They look at every Caribbean picture, you know, every trip to France, every beautiful table. And they're like, well, obviously I'm not doing something right because that person has a better life. They have a better car. Look at their kids. Look how luxurious their life is. They're just standing around going to Starbucks and yoga. Well, I work hard. I mean, there's always these comparators. And so a lot of times what I like to put out there in the world is like, I would like to show you a picture of my car and it will make you feel better about your life because there is so messy and like embarrassingly. So, you know, I should not have this many water bottles in my car, you know? So it just normalizes it. It's like, guys, we're all in this together. We all have strengths and weaknesses and hot mess moments. 
you know, and many times, like one time there was a Zoom call and I didn't know it was a Zoom. I thought, well, this happens a lot. And I thought it was a conference call. There's no way I'm showing my face. I haven't showered in days. I have greasy hair. I'm wearing frumpy clothes. I'm like, there's, and they said, we can't see you. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Something must be off with my camera. Like there's, I can't, I can't show my face. It's embarrassing. So, you know, there's moments like that, that we all just have to embrace. And when you see, I try to talk a lot about this on whatever forum I'm in, but when you see someone that looks like they have a beautiful life and they're putting off that image, it's okay to applaud it. It's okay to be like, look at you, beautiful, beautiful flower arrangement, beautiful vacation. I'm so proud of your children. You don't have to be jealous about it because you know that they also have those deep, dark secrets and divorce and you know, infidelity and difficult relationships with their mother and, you know, all these hard things too. And so let's just give people grace, right? I mean, if they're shining their, you know, silver and putting it on the shelf for the, on the front porch for people to see as they walk by, it's okay. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that their life is perfect. I put a lot of ugly truth out there just because to normalize it, to show people my life is crazy. You guys, it's not all perfect. And I, I wish that we would all have a little bit more of that attitude, you know, understand that people's lives are hard. They're not always so beautiful, but yet we can still applaud the beauty when we see it. Yeah. And celebrate it. Yeah, for for sure. I think that was one of the most beautiful things that happened at the conference was normalizing the hard and celebrating what we often overlook because we're too focused on the hard. That is true. A lot of my, my friends even sometimes get mired down, you know, in sort of their own weight. And you don't want to be the friend that's like that toxic positivity, you know, energizer bunny. That's like, look at the good. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. We need to sit with people that are suffering and understand their grief. That being said, you know, if you can't climb out of some of that and put it in perspective, you know, I always like to say, can I look at this from 30,000 feet? You know, can I look down upon this tragedy or this grief or this problem and see it from a different perspective, you know, right? Different parts of the elephant. Is there a way that I can look at it differently? Sometimes that really helps get you out of it, you know, gets you out of a really dark place. It's just to try to look at it from a different perspective or even grow from it. You know, I had a doctor client who was an oncologist and he's going through a really difficult legal battle that is not his fault. I mean, and he said to me, I, I swear a dozen times, this isn't fair. I don't know why they're, this other party is doing this to me. It's not fair. I never asked for this. I want you to stop it immediately. Get me out of this. And I, I stopped and I listened and I said to him, have you ever thought about your patients that are going through cancer? That's exactly how they feel. You know, get this out of me. Make this stop. This is not fair. And he was like, I never, never really thought about it that way, you know? And I... I think it's really interesting to look at whatever you're going through and put it in perspective in someone else's situation, because I said, it's going to help you have compassion for your patients, because now you understand the anger and the rage that comes from inequity or unfairness or something's doing something to you that you don't deserve. You know, nobody asked for colon cancer. Nobody wants a lung module, but yet sometimes you have it and you have to sort of deal with it, whether it's fair or not. And, and I hope that lesson you know, rang true with him because I, I try to look at all the situations in my life and think, how can I put this lesson into another category, you know, like cross, cross pollinate or whatever, and figure out if I can learn lessons in all the different areas, whether it's faith or whether it's family or whether it's kids or, you know, look at your situation and think how, 
what did the other lessons that I learned in life teach me about this? I think that's really important. What really stands out is that is powerless that he must have felt really powerless. I know there are times that I feel so powerless and the rage and the anger comes out. How do you manage that as an attorney, knowing that there are times that things are very unfair and a court isn't going to settle it or the court isn't going to fix it? That is one of the hardest things I do. Like I had a client that got an audit and it was, you know, half a million dollars. And she's, you know, because they didn't document one tiny thing, it would bankrupt her practice. I mean, that's a powerless feeling, right? I didn't document this one thing in the CPT code. Now all of a sudden they're coming after me for half a million dollars. It'll shut my practice down. I'm a therapist. I treat underprivileged children. Like, do they not care? Like they're going to shut down my practice over some administrative BS. And I mean, that rage is palpable, right? I mean, that is like, I hear you. And one of the things, you know, they call attorneys, attorneys and counselors at law, because there's a huge, their counselor component. I'm not trained as a counselor, but a lot of times what I do is listen and say, I understand. And I know this system is broken and I'm going to fight hard and I'm going to do everything that I can to help you. And I'm in your corner. And at least, you know, you have that, right? At least, you know, someone's fighting for you and you're not all alone and you have someone that understands what you're going through. And, you know, of course, sometimes we have huge victories and my clients are dancing, you know, and singing. And then other times we end up settling something and no one's really happy, but it's resolved. But at the end of the day, I want them to feel like they have someone that they can turn to. That's really important. The community of feeling like we're in the trenches together Now it's a little odd because they are paying me, which is a little awkward, but you know, I don't, it's not, to me, it's not about the money so much as I want you to feel that you are protected, that you have someone to turn to. Cause I think the most powerless is I have no idea what direction to turn. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. And I have been there so many times in my life. And I think that's where you start to develop like the I'm hyperventilating. I've got anxiety. It's bubbling up. I can't seem to breathe. You know, it just gets overwhelming. And just to feel that you can take a step back and breathe and understand that you're not alone and that you're going to be okay is half the battle right there. So that's what I try to do. And I I can imagine because I've experienced it, that the powerless feeling leads to a lot of blame and shame. And, And if I, if I don't speak out, if I don't allow somebody to speak in, if I don't allow myself to be seen and heard, Ooh, that just festers. It does. Well, and it, it not only it festers, but sometimes it comes out in bizarre ways, you know, overworking yourself, you know, the shame or blame can come into feeling like you have to go gangbusters at work and you're burned out and you're, you know, it just ends up sort of coming out in these little shoots of strange areas. And that's what I, you know, the balance is off as my yoga friend likes to say, Oh, your chakras are off your balance is off, you know, you're, you're, you need to go find your center again, which I always, I'm like rolling my eyes, you know, but she's right. You know, it's what happens when we feel powerless and we feel a lot of shame. We end up wanting to do something about it. And sometimes we end up over-exercising. That's not my problem or overeating or over-drinking or overworking, you know, to try to find that center again. And sometimes it's not healthy. So I'm really proud of you and all of the people that do wellness coaching, working with doctors to try to find that joy again, because that's really key. When you hear somebody who says, I want to do something entrepreneurial, 
And they can be a friend. Let, let's just say it's a friend. From a big picture perspective, what are the legal things that you think about? Like for them to have in place so they aren't running around naked and not aware of it. You know, that's a good, it's a really fine line because you do want to support, you know, your friend's dreams and you don't want to quash all of their, their soul, but yet you also don't want to see your, you know, your, the people that you love run around and waste time. Right. I mean, so from a business perspective, you might say things like gently, like, look, I'm so excited that you're passionate about that. I want you to do things that make you joyful but is there an audience for this product or are you flooded? Is this a market that really needs this thing? Or have you done any research about it? Or, you know, I mean, are you like investing your life savings into this or is this just a hobby that you're doing on the side that, you know, those, I might ask some of those questions just kindly, you know, not too evasive, but in a way that kind of says, have you really thought this through? Um, because if you're going to start this multi-level marketing thing or something, you know, that, that is, you're really not going to enjoy, may not make you money. You're going to hit up all your friends to sell your, your widgets. You know, I don't know. Is that really something you, you really want to do, but you don't want to discourage too much. So it's a fine line, but I will say my head goes to things like, do you have a market for this? And how is your company unique? How are you setting yourself apart? Do you have a solid business plan, right? Do you have funding that it's going to take to get you through the hump because it's not just going to go gangbusters on day one. Do you have the staying power to fail and fail and fail? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe they do, but I mean, there's a lot of flash in the pan ideas where people have the idea for the greatest novel and the greatest business plan. And then, you know, it just peters out. So sometimes you do just let it peter out, but if they're, you know, spending a lot of their hard earned money on something that you see is not going anywhere, or you don't think it has staying power. I think sometimes I do try to sit my friends down and talk to them about it. You know, let's just have a conversation. Tell me about your dream. Let's talk it through because, because it's hard, man. It is hard to be an entrepreneur with the world so crowded with other, you know, entrepreneurs and it's hard to set yourself apart and it's hard to be, you know, an expert in all the new media out there. That's another thing. It's like just marketing your company has changed dramatically from the days that I wrote my brochure, you know, to get a job. But I mean, you know, digital marketing is like just very different from it was, you know, 20 years ago. So I think finding a good team around you is also really key. I mean, do you have people that are helping you? Are you just trying to do this all on your own? I think those are all really good, valuable questions. And you've learned a lot about this because you are on another entrepreneurial journey. Can you speak about that? Sure. So when I started my law firm, it really wasn't as difficult to be fair. I had a lot of contacts. I had a lot of book of doctors that I knew. I went to lunches and dinners and said, please hire me. I can help you. And they did. And I made money. And I thought, well, this isn't very hard. So when people say things like, oh, you started your own company, I was kind of pat myself on the back. Like, yes, I know I did this all right. And then you realize that a services-based business is very different from a products business and they have very different ways you market and create. So six months ago, I had an idea and it really was spurned from frustration. To be honest, Dina, I was working so hard and I have to work and bill every hour that I make. And if I'm not in front of that computer billing those hours, you know, the money doesn't just magically flow into my bank account. <laughs> I know my children think that's what happens, but it does not. So I thought I can't work this hard, you know, forever. I just can't keep grinding it out. There's got to be a way that I can do what I love and still work with doctors and not bill by every hour. So I had this idea to create this video series and this platform for physicians 
where they get a video every week and I can take my brain and put it into this media forum. And there was a subscription model and they could pay every month and receive these videos. And that, when that was born, it just was like a freight train. And the minute I realized that this was something that I really wanted to do, I have not stopped. And so that started Guard My Practice, which is this new company I'm launching next month. It's been a whirlwind, you know, getting it up and running and all of the marketing and the behind the scenes and the infrastructure and the content building and the product, you know, that I'm making. And it's different. You know, you make a product, you have to sell it. You know, you know, it's referral based legal work is one thing, you know, this person tells four people and then you have enough work and you're sort of, you know, rolling, rolling through life, doing quite well. But when you have a product, you got to go out and sell it. And it's hard. It's hard in this crowded market to make your product stand out. So it's been a journey. And I always say to my kids, well, mom's going to be well off and you're going to go keep going to school and have books and backpacks. or we're all going to be broke. Okay. Bye. Have a good day. Like, you know, I don't know how it's going to go. It might fail, but if it does, I'll pivot and we'll figure it out. And that's, that's the hardest part, especially when you're bankrolling your own company, right? You're robbing from all of your accounts. You're using home equity loans. You are grabbing from every couch cushion, you know, to try to figure out how to pay for everything. And, you know, you really have to bank on your own, your own instincts. You know, you have to really think, am I investing in something here? Or am I just throwing money away? If you truly believe you're investing in yourself, then it's worth it. At least that's what I'm telling myself. It's literally all my money is going to this, but that's, that's the way I look at it. I'm investing in myself and I can't imagine someone that works harder than me. You know, I don't know anybody that puts in more heart than me. So how about I invest in that and I grow that and I see what happens. And there is a huge leap of faith that comes about from putting yourself out there and just hoping it flies and you just do everything you can, you know, to make that happen. Yeah. And the premise is that you're helping doctors to feel like they're not walking around naked, like that they, they have an understanding of what's important in various realms of opening their own practice. And these are not things that are either taught or taught enough in training. Medical school did not overdo it when it comes to the legalities. There were ethics classes. Sure. There was maybe some structure in a practice, but I, I I never got the sense of we're going to set you up so that when you leave the army, you're going to be able to open your own practice. No way. Well, I hear that a lot. I mean, that's one of the reasons why this company was born. It was out of those constant conversations. I speak to residents every month. I have like an on, ongoing uh, speech that I give different residents. And after I give a talk on negotiating their first contract and how to negotiate from a place of strength and knowing your worth and, you know, all the various things I talk about. And, you know, even just setting up your own company. And do you know what that means? Do you know this, like, four or five things you need to start to do. Do you know what a lease even looks like? Like, Have you ever negotiated these things before? And at the end, they just look at me like, where, where have you been? Like who, where is this being taught? Where do we go for more? We're just so hungry for this information. And I'm saddened. I'm saddened that they don't have the resources. And I was looking around trying to find somewhere for them to go and I couldn't find it. And that's why I started this is because there's not one place where they can say, how do you, how do you learn the basics of dealing with employees? and difficult patients, and compliance, and all the legal risks, and what about your advanced practice provider, and how do you deal with difficult colleagues, and what about when you want to separate from your partner? I mean, these are all things that happen in the life of the physician, and I see it because I've been hearing it for 21 years, 
And I thought there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a one place we can put all of this data. And so doctors can go and learn and grow. And like, if I learn from mistakes, then why can't they learn from my clients' mistakes? Because I try to constantly talk about, oh, you got to hear this one, you guys. This is bad. Like, you know, this client made this big error and I don't want you to ever make that mistake. That's helpful. That's like sharing the wealth. And to me, that's like, it's a mission field out there, right? We can share things that happened bad to their partners and make it, you know, understandable enough so that they don't make the same mistakes. And I think that's really powerful as a teaching tool, right? To talk about personal stories that I have had to get physicians through. And then maybe you'll learn from that and grow from that. And you'll make other mistakes, you know, but not this one. And so that's the reason I started this company. I'm really excited to teach and really work with doctors. I mean, I feel that I am like a support person for a physician. I mean, I don't know how to practice medicine and I don't want to make sure, I don't want you to turn you into a lawyer. I just want you to understand that you know more than you think you do. Let's talk through some of these issues that you really, you know, can easily solve on your own, sometimes without even calling a lawyer. Just having the information is really important. And knowing the issue spot. If I can just tell a doctor, look out for these five things in a contract. They're really important. Just put that in your brain. Then at least they'll know what to look for if they do have to hire someone to help them. And that's half the battle. I imagine it helps to slow people down to become more intentional because in the midst of a, of a passionate idea, it's easy to go out and, <laughs> and just try to do things in a hurry to get it done and get started without thinking mm-hmm. about what's going to come back to haunt me. Oh, all the time. And you know what happens a lot is employment law situations. They say, fire this person, get rid of this, make this stop. You know, and I go, wait, wait, let's slow it down. Let's think about, do we have documentation that this nurse has conducted these terrible things? Did, you, did anyone write that down? Do you have a file on that? Like, let's think that through before you make a rash decision. And man, that has saved a lot of my clients for me just saying, let's make a timeline of events. Let's sit down and talk about what's going on and what are the steps that we need to take before you take the pivotal step of firing someone or terminating someone's contract or making allegations that you, you know, maybe can't support. So that's really important. And, you know, slow it down is like some of the main advice I give in many areas of a doctor's life. When they're about to, when they hear from an investment group or ambulatory surgery center, you have to invest. This is a limited time opportunity. You've got to get on board. Man, everybody is investing. This is exciting. Woo, we're going to make millions. Sign today. Okay. Take a breath. You've got to know what you're dealing with. You have to look at the documents. You know, it's if it's too good to be true, I, I can tell you it is. So I face that a lot. Doctors want to get on board and not miss out on the new greatest investment. And they just have to slow down. The other thing I see are non-legal advisors who offer shortcuts, which could Mm -hmm. be very detrimental. I remember years ago, Craig and I, we had a nanny and the nanny was like, you don't need to pay these extra taxes and you you don't need to sign up for, was it unemployment insurance through the state, whatever it is. You could, you could just Mm -hmm. save money. And that relationship went bad and right as it went bad, the first thing that they asked for was the ability to uh, file for unemployment, wanting to make sure that we did it. And we had, like we had all the the documentation and we had paid all the dues, mm-hmm. but it was such a, a, a clear reminder that relationships change and shortcuts oh my gosh. are shortcuts 
can either feed a fire or keep a fire from developing. So true. And speaking of relationships changing, I mean, I sound like a bitter old cynical lady because there's many times that young, fresh faced doctors will say, but this is my dream job. Like my children are going to go to school right down the street and my husband works in town. It's like perfect. And then we're going to invest. In- it, it doesn't even matter what the contract says because it's not going anywhere. And I'm like, listen, you know, you think right now, you know, that nothing will ever change. It does. It, you have to move closer to your mother. Your husband loses his job. You know, they turn sour. It looks wonderful when you're interviewing. And then some, you might end up working with a narcissist that you can't deal with or that these are unethical people. And so, you know, people that say things like, oh, I'll just sign this contract now and, and I'm sure they'll work with me or I'll negotiate that non-compete later. Or they said that they would be easy on me when I left lies, <laughs> blatant lies. No, But you know, it's all well intentioned until it's not right until it falls apart. So it's my job to forecast the future. Every time I talk to a doctor about signing a contract, I'm like you need to role play the exit. What does the end look like before you even sign? Right? What are you going to be responsible for? What kind of money? Do you have a tail policy? Do you have, you know, any, this doesn't just apply to doctors. Like if you're taking a job and it goes south, and you have an, if you have a binding contract that you're signing, how do you get out of that contract? Is it a certain number of days notice? Do you have to put in a certain number of years? Is there a non-compete? Is, you know, all those questions should be thought about before you sign. And I have heard a lot of empty promises in my career. You know, don't worry about it. I had one poor client. Oh, she was lovely. And she left. She got, you know, resigned from a job really it was a you know almost a firing but we sort of prevented that by putting in her notice but they had made claims to her about we're not going to hold you to this non-compete it's just the contract our lawyer drafted don't worry about it i know it looks really formal but you know we've never held anyone to a non-compete she absolutely believed all of those statements and none of them turned out to be true they 100% you know held her to the non-compete they hid behind their lawyer at the end you know, and there's nothing I could do. It was already signed by the time she came to me and the damage had already been done. So we just had to do damage control. So I try to tell doctors that, you know, don't believe someone when they say, oh, don't worry. I know it says one thing, but it means another, or there's a loophole or it doesn't really apply to you because what you sign in writing really matters. And, and that applies to non-docs too. Like it's amazing how, how often one can hear, oh, that's just the contract. We can't make any changes. What, mm-hmm. What's your response to that? I mean, there is sometimes truth to it. You know, I talk a lot about negotiating contracts and it's all about leverage. It's always about leverage. So when I hear a hospital system say, oh, we don't make any changes to the contract. I say, well, do you need an interventional cardiologist or do you not? Right. I mean, because we all the cards here, right? This is a this is a physician that you desperately need. Sometimes I even know that that contract has a requirement that they have to have a certain number of call or a certain type of arrangement with a certain type of physician, or they lose their accreditation. You better believe that I'm going to use that as leverage, right? To say, well, you're going to change your non-compete, or you're going to change these provisions, or we need a raise or a bonus, or the structure needs to change, or you won't have this person, and you're never going to find someone as amazing as my client. Because you have to think like the other side when you negotiate, right? This is what my client can bring to you that nobody else can. Set them apart. Show how they are amazing in all the ways. And also be willing to walk away. 
you know, bigger groups think that they're, they can just bully their way around. And that if they say things like this isn't changeable and take it or leave it, then doctors will just take it because guess what? That's what happens a lot. And so when they finally realize that they have leverage and they have power and they can actually stand up and say, no, I had a doctor that I'm really proud of her. Um, we asked for a $20,000 sign on bonus. She was like very important to this particular group literally worked upstairs and the group had a business downstairs and they were going to take all of her patients and it was going to assume it into one practice it would be a boon for the practice it would have been a great fit. And they said, Oh, I'm sorry, we don't offer sign on bonuses and your salary is capped. And that's just what we're going to give you. And we said, well, we will continue to grow our practice. Thank you so much. We will take all of your patients upstairs. They, you know, see you at Starbucks. And it turns out they came back $20,000, no problem, raise, no problem. I mean, you have to be able to stand up for yourself and then walk away when you don't get it. And you don't make bluffy, braggadocious statements about what you think you're worth. You do your homework, you research it. And this is not just physician driven. You know, if you're negotiating for anything, I'm a big believer in data supported, research driven negotiations. You don't go to someone and say, well, I believe you need to pay me $2,000 an hour when that's not market value. That doesn't make sense. People laugh at that. If you say, no, this is what is in market. I've done the research. This is what people in this area are should be making. And I deserve this because I've earned it over 20 years. And if you don't want to pay it, that's fine. You can find someone else and you can get what you pay for. That is okay. And I wish more doctors would stand up for themselves more. And sometimes not to be sexist, but females are not great about advocating for themselves, right? It's like, well, that's fine. I'll do that for a couple of years. And well, I need to be working less because of my family. It's like, no, you know, you need to go in there just like any other professional. Everybody has a family that they need to take off time for. So what that you're the mom. And so I think that it's uh, part of it is just me encouraging clients and doctors to, to please don't think that you know, asking for what you're worth is somehow making you a terrible monster or that they're going to look at you like some over aggressive wench that they don't want to work with. That's not true. And the contract is designed for the person who wrote it to protect their interest, not necessarily for the person that is signing it or being brought on. I, I, I totally agree. Like retain your right to say no and retain the right. perspective that it is not there's not only one, that there are plenty. There are plenty of other right. opportunities, places, times. And sometimes, you know, the negotiation process can be a insight into the job dynamic, right? I mean, if they're, you know, take it or leave it, we're not going to listen to you, you know, sign it tomorrow, very bully and bossy. I mean, do you not think that that's going to be the environment that you're working in? You know, sometimes it's kind of indicative of the group. And if they don't want to treat you like a professional, they're treating you like a widget. And that's how they're going to treat you when you work there. And so I always try to remind my clients, you know, you are a professional with skill and value. And I want you to find a practice that appreciates that for who you are and what you bring to the table. And if they blow me off, they blow you off, they put arbitrary deadlines and sort of treat you like just a cog in a wheel, then, you know, think about if that's the place you want to work. There's no way that a physician without any legal training would know everything that, that the contract is actually saying. Just like a, a non-physician, we somehow as high achieving humans, we have this belief that we should know, 
We should know what it means. That's so true. <laughs> and we shouldn't ask for help. And I, I think that's a, right. such a huge mistake that we really need to pay up front for an advocate to help us understand what it says and help us protect what's what's important to us too. Why is that? I wonder why. I mean, like when, when physicians say that to me, it's almost like they're embarrassed. Like, I'm sorry, but I, this just looks Greek to me. I feel like I should be able to understand it. Like, you know, you're not trained. You're not trained to understand legal jargon. You know, to you, it just looks like nonsense. So some of what I do is just demystify, you know, the law for a doctor. What this is saying is really that they can take money out of your last paycheck when you leave. Or a force majeure clause just means that if there's a strike or a riot or a pandemic and the government shuts down and they literally can't run a business, then they might not have the obligation to pay you. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. But if you if you can't put it in layman's terms, what happens is doctors are afraid to ask. They will say, well, I'm probably stupid. I, that probably makes sense. I guess it's fine. I don't really know what it means, but I don't really want to show my you know, ignorance. And that is what I'm for. Sometimes I want to tell them like, I'm your lawyer. You can show all the underbelly, you know, of your ignorance and nobody knows because it's completely confidential. So it's, it's the time where you can say, I'm sorry, but what does this mean? You know, what am I signing here? And am I interpreting this right? And often I might have a client that says, I've already signed this. I'm not asking you to negotiate, but I think I, I signed it prematurely. And now I'm feeling like anxious about it can I send it to you? And you can just go through it with me and tell me if there's some areas that maybe I just need to be, you know, on alert about. And I do, I say, okay, let's go through this. Okay. Well, this is a little one-sided and this area is a little, not, you know, a little outside the market. And you need to be aware that if you leave in the first two years, you're going to have to pay back that sign on bonus. I don't know if you realize that not just a pro rata part, but the entire amount. So if you leave in one year and 10 months, you're going to have to cut them a check for $20,000. And they're like, I had no idea. So, you know, it's helpful just to know what you are signing. And I do not ever fault doc. I don't think they're idiots or ignorant for not understanding. Just like I look at an EKG, Dana, and it just looks like a bunch of squiggles. Like I have no clue what an EKG, I don't know how to read that. I don't know what that means. I go, what is this? Are these good squiggles? Does this mean my brain works great or my heart is okay? Like, I literally have no idea. And I'm not a stupid person. So it's the same. It's just not our world. You know, it's easy for a doctor to understand. I tell you, it's real. And sometimes I can relate because doctors have these funny stories of patients. I love hearing patient stories and patient. I have um, different. I have a session on difficult patients that I talk about in my videos dealing with difficult patients, but they're not all difficult, like jerks or difficult, like they're being rude or hostile. It's more difficult of, you know, non-compliant and you can't seem to get them to understand where you're coming from, or they simply come in with their own preconceived notions and they will not follow your advice. You know, stuff like that is also difficult, even though they're really nice, but they read on, you know, WebMD or some nonsensical site that if they take wheatgrass shots, they will magically be cured. You know, as doctors are just like, oh, you know, and I'm like, I hear you. I understand how hard that is, you know, to try to continue to treat them and they keep coming back and you keep trying to tell them your knowledge and they just won't hear it. And yet, you know, they're not often dumb people. They just, you know, you have to accept people for where they are. And the doctors that I know that really survive that just kind of go, bless their heart. I'm really, I put it in the chart. I keep documenting what I document and, and sometimes they grow and learn and sometimes they don't. But that's, that's the fun part, you know, is to talk to doctors about their day and the challenges that they face. And one thing that I don't know if people realize, this is interesting for non-doctors to hear, I think. Imagine, you know, being in a job all day 
where you see 25 people that are cranky, not feeling well, not at their best, right? And, and you have to be on, happy and responsive and sit, not stand and look curious and don't fold your arms and don't do anything that's going to piss them off. You know, I mean, good gracious, like most people just sit into an office, you know, look at Facebook half a day, you know, and, and do some reports. Like they don't have to deal with all of the pressures that every single 15 minute slot brings into your life. And that is a really tough world. And so when a doctor calls me in between patients and they're, you know, pissed and they're venting, I, you know, I, I hear it. I listen because it's like, you've got to be able to get that out and finding balance is hard because you can't go vent to a patient. You can't just lose it because then it's like, oh, great. There's a board complaint. You know, there's a Yelp review. There you go. And so I really have a lot of sympathy for that. And that's where the humor comes in. You've got to be able to laugh some of that off, right? Some of these, some people in humanity are coos. I mean, you know, you just have to say, well, that's, that's my crazy patient for the day, you know, and to be able to laugh about it. Otherwise, you're just going to get so frustrated, you know, and mired in anger. And that is really not good for your soul. <laughs> As I like to say, not good for your soul. All right. Final words of wisdom. You know, Dina, I think you actually said it earlier. It's finding a team. I really think we are built for community and more so I realized that during COVID, you know, when we were all locked up inside and we were becoming really itchy and we couldn't figure out how to scratch it, it's because we weren't together, you know? And one of the things about community is finding people around you that make you feel safe because doctors are not feeling safe. They're feeling overwhelmed, burned out. You know, there's too much to remember. They have to be experts at too many things. And so I think my words of wisdom would be, you've got to go find your tribe, not just people around you that make you feel good, but people around you that are experts in things that you are not experts in, whether it's someone picking up your kids or whether it's someone's you know, meal delivery services that can help you get through the week, or whether it's finding a good lawyer or an accountant or a financial advisor or some, you know, a compliance person and a billing lady at your office where you're like, man, I'm so glad that you know about billing and coding. I'm so glad that you keep up with the regs and the research and that you do the things that keep me out of trouble. If you don't have that team around you, you will collapse under the pressure. It is too much. And I, that's one of the reasons why I started this company is like, help me, you know, help me help you like turn and you got to have somebody to turn to. You have to be able to have a team and a village and a community, whether it's online, whether it's real life, to feel supported. And I find that extremely important in my clients is to have the people around them that have the expertise so they can do what they do best, which is to put hands on patients and to listen to their patients and to solve complex problems. Like that is very joyful for a zone to be in with a physician. But if they're busy trying to manage their kids' problems and manage something at their school and, you know, billing and coding and legal issues, they can't do their job well. So that's my takeaway. Yeah. And start where you're at. Even if it seems like it's too late, still start there. Ask for help. Yeah. Figure out, is there a mess? What does the mess look like? And start the cleanup process for the mess. And if it, and you can't start too early either. <laughs> so right. thinking about a business in a year or two, start now thinking about learning about what it entails. What are the legal structures and support and who, as you said, who needs to be on the tribe? Because that's what makes life better. No I need agree. to walk around naked. <laughs> right. Don't be naked. Feel feel safe. 
you know, I used an example the other day um, on a podcast about when you're in a war-torn area, you know, and your house is being shelled and you've lost family members and you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. I mean, you, you are literally fight or flight mode. You cannot do anything well because all you think about is finding safety, like a pr primary basic human instinct. And that kind of correlates to other areas of your life. You don't feel safe if you're like you're being bombed then you're, you're just trying to control your emotions and get through your day. You cannot find joy. You cannot thrive. You can't do your job well and feel at peace. And so, you know, one of the things is just like get to safety. Find the basic people that can help you get to the place of basic safety so that you can say, whew, okay, now I can breathe and I don't feel like I'm being shot at. And I can then look around me and try to strategize and think, you know, of the future. But a lot of doctors that I see every day, honest to gosh, are completely being shelled on a daily basis and they can't see the forest for the trees. They're just so overwhelmed. They just want to hide. And I hate that. You know, I hate that when they're mired in all kinds of, you know, legal issues and, and compliance issues and an audit. And then there's a board complaint or there's patient issues and they just want to stop practicing altogether. It's never too late, like you said, to say, let me try to get some help and put these things in boxes and deal with them one at a time until I can feel like I'm in control of my life. So where can people find you as a humorist, a writer, an attorney, and the founder of Guard My Practice? <laughs> well, those are all different things, but I'm still one person. And I would go to guardmypractice.com and please sign up for the free video, You know, learn more about negotiating your contract, but sign up for the program. I would love to have as many people as I can in my community. I wanna have an online community and build a tribe, right? Where you feel like you can go and ask questions. So you can find me there. I'm on all the socials, um, but I really enjoy connecting with people. Also, I, I, ask, I ask questions and I receive a lot of questions that I love to answer. So I'm a very curious person. I think that's a strength. So I think we should all be curious together. And as far as Instagram, you're there as Amanda Hill. Guard my practice. And I'm also there as Amanda Hill writes. If you want to look at my pictures of my food and my random pictures of my chickens or, or my currently dead garden, you know, all joyous things that you can look at on Instagram. <laughs> thank you so much, my friend. Oh, thank you for having me. It was so fun.